Well, kia ora koutou, and welcome to this second session of the Word Christchurch Autumn season. I'm Liz Grant, and I'm here to welcome the brave woman following in the footsteps of Niall Marsh, <laughs> Stella Duffy. Thank you. Thank you. Um, before we get underway, also <coughs> let's thank because it is important, and these events don't happen without them, the Word Christchurch major sponsors, and they are Creative New Zealand, Christchurch City Council, the Rata Foundation, uh, Te Runanga o Naitahu, and also uh, please let's acknowledge the support of the press. Right, well... Underway, the format for tonight is that uh, Stella and I will have a chat, and amongst other things, she will talk about and read something from her, her novel, her historical novel, London Lies Beneath. Um, we will, of course, talk about the Nile Marsh project, and uh, after, towards the end, we'll have a chance to ask questions. Let's hope that's good and lively as well. Now, the short biography in your program just scratches the surface. In Stella, 15 novels, film scripts, plays, your blog. I just have to say, where do you get the energy? You are <laughs> prolific. Um, 65 short stories. Um, Thank you. I, I like working. Yep. I like working. My, my dad left school at 14 because he was the oldest of three kids um, and was born in 1921. My mum left school at 14 because she was the oldest of three kids and born in 1921. They had no opportunities, no education. My dad was a labourer from that age to 65. He died at 67. The time off he had in his life was being a prisoner of war for four and a half years because he was in the New Zealand Air Force and got shot down quite early on. So I know I'm really bloody lucky. Um, and uh, I get really annoyed when artists or writers talk about how, how it's hard work and I have to suffer, I want to punch them. Um, it's hard work being a labourer all your life and hating it and, not, and being a brilliant man and never having an opportunity. It's hard work bringing up seven kids and working full-time like my mum did. It's not hard work. To, I work really hard at it, but it's yeah. not hard work. And I do. It's really important to make that differentiation. I have a lot of ideas, um, and I like and, and I like playing with them. Uh, and I know mm. I'm fortunate to be able to do it. Mm. One of the things that's been less fortunate in your life is you have had cancer twice. Twice. I mean, you know, really, yeah. right? Because lightning does strike, strike twice. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of keeping yourself well and also continuing to have the energy for all the work that you do, mm -hmm. how do you manage that? Um, well, with difficulty. I, uh, I did yoga this afternoon. I did a bit of yoga this morning, but um, I went out with some people from the Naya Marsh House Trust to look at some sites that might fit in the book, um, the Naya Marsh book. And I came back to my nephew's place where I'm staying with him and his wife, and they have a lovely sunny front bit. And I thought, oh, I'll do half an hour of yoga, it'll wake me up. Um, a gin and tonic would have woken me up too, but I knew that I had to do this. Um, so, Latterly, because I had my first cancer at 36, um, it was breast cancer, it was a grade three cancer, it was quite bad. I had chemo and surgery and radiotherapy, um, and it was really all awful. 
And I've never had a proper job in my life. I've never had sick pay, I've never had holiday pay, I've never had compassionate leave, and I've worked since I was 17. I'm 54. Um, and, uh, and so I, I am at a stage now, <laughs> um, having had cancer again three years ago, where I am trying really hard, Liz, to sometimes take some time off. <laughs> what does uh, that look like, Stella? Well, <laughs> it looks like at the end of these 25 days in New Zealand, having got off the plane in Wellington and started doing stuff straight away, then Dunedin, then Christchurch, then Auckland, then Palmerston North for the Museums Conference for Fun Palaces, and then a friend. It looks like asking a friend to pick me up. I might cry. It looks like me thinking it would be okay for me to ask a friend to pick me up from Palmerston North, he lives in Tokoroa, so that I could go through and say, say hi to my dad's grave. And then another friend could pick me up and take me to the weekend we've got booked in Fongamata before I fly home. It looks like asking people for some help, which I never normally do. And the other thing it looks like is that last year, thanks to the Nio Marsh book, my wife and I bought a beach hut. A bit, you know, an English beach, not a batch, an English beach hut. It's, um, checking where the speakers are in case it makes a noise. It's, it's this wide and it's this deep and it fits four armchairs across, a little, a little um, uh, oven here. You can actually cook scones in it. Um, a sort of divan here and then it opens out and there's a little balcony and a veranda and it's 80 paces to the sea. <laughs> It's Whitstable, people. It's not the Pacific, but it's the sea. And, and, um, and I feel so, so privileged to have that. So we try and go there now. We've only had it for nine months, and we went all winter, and it's an hour and a quarter's drive from our house near Brixton in South London. And um, I don't work there. I work at home. So if I'm at home, I'll work. Yeah. And she's a playwright, so if yeah, she's, so she's we're at home, she'll work. Yeah. We don't work there. Yeah. It doesn't have electricity. <laughs> Can't plug in your computer. I mean, you know, batteries, but let's pretend they don't exist. Yeah. So I'm, I'm um, in the last third of my life, I assume, if I'm lucky, um, I'm at the beginning of the last third of my life, I'm beginning to learn how to take a little bit of time off sometimes. Sounds like a very good That's plan. It's a great idea, isn't it? It is a great idea. Yeah. In one of your blogs, you said... I have always been writing a book, different books, since 1990. Yeah. So was that always the plan? Did you always want to be a writer? Um, I, I wanted to be a poet or an air hostess when I was nine. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I also wanted to be a trapeze artist. Okay. I can still do the splits, but not on a trapeze. Um, I, 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 you know... I'm not a good enough poet, and I wouldn't ever show them to people I never have. Um, but I did want to work in the arts, and I, did, and I didn't know how people like me, working-class kids from somewhere like Tokoroa, um, could, could do that. And uh, my life literally changed when um, a touring Shakespeare company came to our school when I was 15, and I realized that one of the guys in the company was from Tokoroa, and I knew his little sister, and... And his dad worked at the mill with my dad, and someone like me was in the arts. Because you know, I'm the youngest of seven, and all of my siblings, again, poverty, left school at 15 or 16 to get work. I was the only one who got to, got to go to university. I was the only one who got to finish high school properly. Um, and I, but I still didn't know. I assumed that, that if you went, what you did was you became a lawyer or a teacher, and you did drama in the weekends. 
you know. So, um, and then I discovered that theatre was what I'm passionate about, and I worked in theatre for years, but I always wanted to be Lady Macbeth at Stratford. <laughs> Macbeth, 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 Macbeth. It's not a, you, you know, it's fine. You can say it backstage as well. Um, and, and you can whistle too if you want. Um, and wear green, go for it. Um, uh, and, um, and, I, and I still think I can play Lady Macbeth at Stratford because I think the Macbeths should be well into their 60s. You know how you get all these young actors playing Macbeth? playing Mr. and Mrs. Macbeth, and it's like, well, not all of you may know that, but they often cast young actors yeah. doing it. And it's like, because they're a brilliant, famous young actor, and it's like, yeah, she's 25. <laughs> you know, how, what does she know about thwarted ambition <laughs> at 25? You know, what does she know about you've been nearly king for years, mate? They need to be in their late 60s and desperate for power. So, you know, I've got a while yet. Yeah, you have. It's fine. And watch out, Stratford. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I still love theatre very much, but theatre led me to stand-up, which led me to improv, which led me to writing. So, and books, books take a long time for me. I mean, London Lies Beneath took four years. Um, So I'm always doing a book while I'm doing other things. Doing the book is quite a solitary pursuit. Yep. So, so are we looking at sort of two sides of your personality? Oh, goodness me, yes. So see this, right? Yeah. Um, there'd be no point, I think, in me being here and people being kind enough to fly me across the world to be here if I sat here and said, well, I don't know, Liz. No, I'd be a bit cross. You know, there'd be no point, right? <laughs> I'd say, oh, um, come on, Stella, so, play the game. <laughs> yeah, so, so doing a show, doing yeah. a gig, you want the energy, you want to be a bit of a show for people. And everyone has different versions of what that show is. But all the writers I know make a bit of an effort to turn it on. Um, on the other hand, I'd quite like to be a contemplative nun. Um, if I got... work. <laughs> <laughs> and I love being... I adore being by myself. Mm. I love hours of time just to myself. And I love the quiet. It's been lovely. My nephew's place is so quiet. I love quiet. I love just, yeah, being by myself. So... I like big crowds, and I really like quite extreme. None of that middle stuff, yeah. Your wife, Shelley, is a playwright, you're saying. Um, Do you ever collaborate and write for the theatre? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We've we've tried. We have tried, and we have written some things together, and we think they're good. But um, very early on, I would read her stuff, and she would read mine, and then we'd have terrible arguments. Because she'd go, oh, you know, see that. Don't you think? I'd go, no, I don't think. <laughs> and I'd say to her, wouldn't it be better if she would go, no, bloody wouldn't. Um, so now we, we actually don't read each other stuff or see or hear each other's stuff until it's done. And we're very supportive of each other's work and we're very supportive of the time it takes to make work. And generally, one of us... I don't work at home all the time because of the, the other fun palaces work and other work and going away a lot. But if we're both working at home... One of us will say at about five o'clock, shall we have dinner sometime between seven and eight? And the other one will go, yeah, all right. And then hopefully one of us will volunteer to, to cook, cook something. <laughs> <laughs> and normally it, it's always an hour later that we eat because you're just finishing this bit. Yeah. But we don't ever, I mean, we've been together 27 years. I think we've gotten good at that. We didn't used to be very good at it, but we are good at it now. Let's talk about your Kiwi connection, because yes. you were born in London, and yep. um, but then your dad's a Kiwi, and you came back to live here, and lived in Tokoroa, as you've said. 
Um, in one of the interviews that you did, you talked about Tokoro being multicultural. Yeah, multicultural, multicultural before it was trendy. Ah. Seriously, 60s and 70s, Tokoro, 70% Maori and Polynesian, 26 mm. languages in my primary school, all the Polynesian languages, but also Swiss and French and German and Spanish. And I went to school with, with girls who spoke Welsh as their first language, as well as kids who spoke Nguyen and Samoan at home. And um, sometimes I meet people at parties at, you know, like the New Zealand High Commission do's, which I'm really excited. I love getting invited to them um, in London. And um, people who are, let's just say, not my kind of New Zealander necessarily, say, um, gosh, it must, have, must have been really hard growing up in Tokoroa, mustn't it? <laughs> and and, I, and I, I reel out the spool for them. And I go, why would that be? They go, well, you're gay, you're an artist. Oh, it must have been so hard, because, you know, <laughs> Tokoroa. And um, I don't punch them. Um, I, I point out that Māori and, and Pacifica culture has an oral storytelling culture. That Māori and Pacifica culture, many Pacifica cultures, have a place for third gender. That, actually, I'm enormously privileged to have grown up knowing how to pronounce Tokoroa, and long before 1981. Um, and that, and that it, it gave me so much that coming from a South London council estate, white working class, I would never, ever have gotten London. Never. So I'm really lucky for that. And yes, it wasn't always easy, but it wasn't easy, it wasn't not easy for the reasons they think. It was not easy because I didn't know how to be. And I was in some of my classes, a Pākehā minority. Well, that's a good thing to know what that feels like, you know, in a colonised country. Mm. How great to know what that feels like. So I'm really fortunate and I'm, I really mind, um, and I feel this in, in London too because I live in South London, right, and that's the same joke. It's the same place that people don't go to. Um, it's the same place where taxi drivers won't go. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, people who grow up in those places... What's the Christchurch equivalent? What's the Christchurch suburb that people make jokes about or wouldn't want to live in? Sorry? Paranui? Paranui? Aranui? Okay. Anyone disagree? No. Um, you know, everywhere has those places that people say, oh, you wouldn't want to live there. You ask the people who live there, they have a sense of community, and partly it's because of that. So that book's all about community, totally, and I, and I love ideas of community. So I'm lucky to have grown up there. So having left here, because you grew up here, yep. went to Victoria, Victoria University, yep. and then went to London, yep. do you think that's partly what holds you in London, that huge diversity? Um, uh, only because uh, you, you suggested that in the green room, and I went, oh my God, yes, you're right. That's <laughs> never occurred to me. Um, <laughs> okay, there's a bunch of reasons I'm in London. One is yeah. I really like being a small fish in a big pond. And even at the age of 23, do you want some water? Are you okay, coughing person? Are you sure? <laughs> Seriously. Um, I'm not telling you to shut up. I'm checking you're not dying. Um, uh, even at the age of 23 in Wellington in 1986, I was a bit known because I'm a bit loud and a bit big and quite often too much for people. Certainly then, I was too much for people. And that was really hard, being too big and too much for people. And... Um, it was much easier when I was 
a very small fish in a massive pond. Mm. I love a massive pond. And a very good friend of mine, who was a very successful New Zealand actor, um, was back in London with me at that time. And we'd both been living there for about three years, and I was really happy being a tiny fish. And she said, I know I'm not. She said, I want to be a big fish in a small pond, and that's why I'm going to go home. And she is a big fish in a small pond. And she, and I think having that awareness of yourself at 25, I was really impressed by her. And that made me aware of what I, and I like the diversity. And my wife's Indian Jewish. I mean, you know, it's a very small community, but at least there's some Indian Jews in London. <laughs> um, and the other, can I read this bit? Yes, of course. Now? The other thing is that London Lies Beneath is full of um, created folklore that I wrote, that I made up. But it's um, like any folklore, right? It's not like, hmm, it's fact. Um, but there's a tiny bit in it. Uh, what can I say? So it's studded with little short stories that could be read standalone but are part of the whole narrative. And the short stories are about the charms that the parents pray to or hold or wish into when their sons go missing on a sailing accident that actually happened in 1912. Um, and I, I, thought, I thought I'd join those things up. And, but I wrote this one. And because I'd been working on a show with some New Zealand actors, some Samoan actors, some Samoan opera singers, some London actors, and we devised a show together, and it was about home, not home. It was about how all of us, depending on where we're from, feel like London is home, but it's not home, like New Zealand is home, but it's not home. Thinking of my Barcelona friends in the audience, home, not home. My Argentinian niece, home, not home. You know what, I mean, all of us know what this is like, right? Unless you've lived and bred in just one place. Home, not home. And I, my guess is, since what's happened in Christchurch, it probably feels a bit like that too, since the earthquake. So I think the home, not home thing is really interesting. And we came up with this idea that there's a Tanifa and it lives in the Thames. And it didn't mean to stay. And it was brought, you know, back from the new world and it slipped into the sewer and it grew and it grew and then it couldn't get out because they put the Thames barrier up. And now it runs up, lives up and down the Thames and when you're crossing Waterloo Bridge, it can hear your secrets. And um, it's what keeps us in London, even though home is somewhere else. Because the Tanifa would get lonely if we left and it likes to hear New Zealand accents <laughs> and it likes to hear Maori words pronounced properly. Um, <laughs> And this is, literally, this is a paragraph, because um, in order to not drown, not the drowning that happens later, not the big one, this is just a story, this is full of, it's full of water. And what the designer didn't know, the British designer didn't know, I don't know if you could see, can you see it in this light? When they picked out the waves, they picked out koru. I know, right? They didn't know they'd done that. I had to, because all they were doing was doing waves. And that made me cry. Um, Anyway, this is just a tiny bit. These two people in a boat that's been at sea for three days and lost are telling each other stories. Um, we counted that the night, that doctor and I, in stories. You'd think, in pain as I was from the gash and the blood loss and the tight strip of shirt tied around my thigh, you'd think I'd want to hear roses and sweet songs, not a bit of it. I knew then why most of the sea shanties are of death and of sorrow, Girls waiting on quaysides for men who never come back and men giving themselves up to the deep. The only thing that takes your mind off what's bad is a well-told story of worse. 
He was from the north, this doctor, joined his first ship on the Tyne and learned his trade at sea, apprenticing one ship's doctor after another until he found himself on Our Lady, our ship. He told me of the lampworm, a fat serpent that lives in the Tyne in the northeast, and his story was as long as it was disgusting. In return, I told him of our own river dwellers, the Tanifa, brought back from the New World, from New Zealand, stolen from a Maori king, a man covered in swirling, whirling tattoos, and the creature brought into our London docks as just a little thing, a lizard almost, but not quite. Carted that little lizard over to show off to royalty, see the, see the wonders they have in our far-flung dominions, and then taken about as a sideshow for the pleasure gardens and the zoological gardens. Which it did for a few years, and no worry, plenty to gawp at and stare at the Tanifar scales, its ridged back. And then, one night, when a storm lashed the city and thunder rolled up and down the river, the cage where it was housed was snapped by a bolt of lightning, two men fried in their beds. And that Tanifa, with not a care in the world for lightning or thunder, slipped away into the water, rushing off the lane and down to the river, slipped into the Thames itself. And the man's retelling the story to a child, and he says, Peter looked to Anna, her eyes wide and ears reaching to hear more, and he lowered his voice to tell the rest of his story in a gravelly whisper. You know what they say about the Tanifa, don't you, girl? She shook her head. He smiled. He said, it's homesick, of course, for the Thames is too busy and it can't get by the ships for fear of being seen and landed and brought ashore for our pleasure again. It doesn't like to be looked at, not directly. And it's bigger, much bigger now, full grown on the secrets we tell to the water. The Tanifa lives off our whispers, eating up the fat and tears we tell over the side of a bridge. It's grown fat on what we hide from in the dark, our fears beneath the bedclothes. There's no getting away from it either. It will follow you along the Ephra or the Neckinger as easy as it rides the tide from Tilbury to Teddy. Anna shivered, and Peter went on. <laughs> Clearly that wasn't a paragraph. I thought it was shorter, sorry. <laughs> I'd like to explore a bit more that sense of home, not home. Yep. Again, in a recent blog, you said, I'm going to Aotearoa, New Zealand in two weeks today. For about the past three months, I've mostly been daunted by the prospect, very occasionally excited about it. But this morning, while running, it occurred to me, I don't have to be either fearful or fearless. I could be both, mm. or neither. I could be fearful and fearless, and quite possibly at the same time. But the schedule, and it's a grueling schedule, the schedule isn't what's scary. Going home is scary because, of course, it is home and not home. Do you want to expand on what you mean by that concept? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, as I said before, anyone who's lived away. So, so, you want to say it? There's no place like home, right? It's a lie, and Dorothy knows it. There's no place like home because home changes while we're away. So, she's not saying there's no place like home because I want to go back to Auntie M and the farm. She's acknowledging, because she's grown so much in The Wizard of Oz, that there is no place like home. Home isn't like home. Home changes too. So when we go back, not only are we confronted with our own mortality, because we've changed, we've got older, things have passed, but we meet friends or family, and they've got older or they've died. We're confronted with mortality all the time with home, not home. And since I had my second cancer, and since I had a very 
Uh, I wouldn't even call it a breakdown because I've been with people with breakdowns and I wouldn't want to underplay what they've been through. But I did have a minor meltdown um, one morning when I went, oh, shit, two cancers, just 50. Damn, stats are bad. Um, and, um, and instead of just getting on with it, I asked the hospital for some, some help. And they provided me with an existential psychotherapist who specializes in psycho-oncology. Eight sessions for free on the NHS. Eight. After that, you have to wait six months before you can see them privately. I think it's because they're worried that the Daily Mail will say, NHS doctors touting for business. Um, anyway, so I've been working with an existential psychotherapist who's experienced in people with cancer. And um, it's fantastic. I'm bloody loving it. It's hard. It's therapy, you know. But um, it's amazing. And, and I've been getting to a place in my life where A, I'll sit on a stage and talk about therapy. Um, B, where I will understand that I can be big and gregarious and a contemplative nun, both things, where I can be fearless, <laughs> look at me talking about therapy, and fearful, what are they thinking about me talking about therapy at the same time? So looking at coming to New Zealand, coming to Aotearoa for a month, I'm away for exactly 28 days, with no time off until the last weekend, because I'm, again, aren't I lucky people want me? Aren't I lucky, thank you, you paid tickets? Aren't I lucky to be in this glorious building? Yes, I am. Um, so turn up, do the work, and yes, the schedule's hard. So, so I knew it was going to be tough, but it's not just, it's not the work, it's the, it's the land. And the land calls me, and the sea calls me, and in Dunedin, my friend took me to the beach, and I had to get in. It's cold. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so Ned. the other thing, of course, I'm fearful of is that on the 30th of May, I will be crying at Auckland Airport. I will. Mm. And, yeah. So how has London changed you, or living in London? Oh. Oh. That's a question I'm not practised in the answer for. <laughs> Shall we move on? Well done, you. No, 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 no. How has London changed me? Well, I am a Londoner, but I'm a Pākehā Londoner. I'm a Pālangi Londoner. Um, I, don't, I don't feel... I am of London, and I'm in London. No one belongs to London. You know, Lond London eats people up, chews them up, buries them, digs them up again. I adore it because it's so busy and it's so full. I adore it for all of that. Um, I think London has given me opportunities that I could never have had elsewhere. I'm not a bestseller. I'm a midlist, middle-aged author that some people still buy, thank you. Um, and, uh, and sometimes some books do quite a lot better than others. And I've won some prizes and that's made a difference. But, you know, I, I have friends who are mega bestsellers. Um, Ian Rankin, Val McDermott, <laughs> names the crime writing mates. Um, Mark Billingham, you know, they have a very different life than I do. Because of that, actually, because I am a jack of all trades, I get to do loads of different things. And somewhere as big as London provides the opportunity to do loads of different things. And I think it'd be very hard anywhere else, I mean, to, you know, go on to the Nio Marsh thing. She found it very difficult because people wanted her to be a theatre director or a writer. You know, they found, they found that double thing hard, whereas, of course, it fed her work. Yes, well, of course, when she was here, I mean, she was 
hardly known as a crime writer, really. Yes, that's New Zealand literary snobbery for you. Um, (laughs) This is the woman who was called the Marsh Millions, who sold more books in... I won't get this right, and someone in this room will know much better than me, but I think it was like 48, 49. More books than Agatha Christie, by far. This was one of the world's most successful novelists at the time, and she comes home and people go, oh, no, I don't read your books. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's always genre snobbery. You know, this is ostensibly a literary novel, but it's historical. So people who don't read historical won't read it. This is ostensibly a crime novel, but it's a psychological thriller, and I think it's written fairly literarily. But, you know, publishing is a business, and they, they want the categories to help us sell, and I get that but that the world is full of genre snobs who won't read things like that, which is awful. You know, if you haven't read Marsh and you are a genre snob, um, start with start with Died in the Wool and read somebody writing a graphic, graphic revelation at least 60 years ahead of some of the, of the things like The Fall or The Killing on telly. Quite amazing. And yes, she is of her time, and yes, there are problems with that, but some of her writing is still right up there. I very much want to talk to you about that, about the... She was a woman of her time. Yep. Died in the Wall came out in 1945. Yep. And there is um, some appalling racism. Yep. Some terrible class attitudes. So how do you, as a contemporary mm. woman maintain um, the tone that this is a Naya no. Marsh novel, but you don't you don't have all of that in it. Well. Or do you have yeah. some of that in it? Um, I think there is appalling classism. Um, her family were, well, they weren't always wealthy, um, certainly, but they had pockets of wealth and pockets of money lost. But they were certainly privileged. Um, you know, you don't get to build that house, even the smaller version of it, unless you've got some, some privilege. Um, and, uh, and in terms of racism, I have to say, I don't think she's anywhere near as racist as most of the other Pākehā New Zealanders writing at the time. In, yeah. in, um, she does a lot of noble savage, which isn't quite as appallingly racist as others who only write about the Maoris who are always drunk or the Maoris who are godless. She doesn't do that. She does blame uh, drunkenness on the colonization of Māori culture. She has quite a few amazing, they are noble characters, um, noble savage characters, um, where the tribal darkness shows underneath. Um, However, she writes, I think, incredibly sympathetically about a colonized people, particularly in um, color scheme. And, And I genuinely think that you'd be hard pushed to find a Pākehā writer writing in the 30s or 40s who writes as a, with, with such awareness of colonization and the damage that colonization did to, to native people. So I think there is that. However, of course, she's of her time. She's a privileged white woman. She's got all of this. So I'm not saying the Maoris anywhere. It's good. Because um, I, I wouldn't. At the same time, I can't have a character saying the Māori, because that, meaning the plural, because that would be wrong too. So I think where it is said, it says the Māori people, because I can get away with that and do both. I'm trying very hard not to censor her. So I think she's sexist as well, you know. Mm-hmm. So are people of that time. It's set 
um, towards the, the, the one that I'm finishing. She'd written three chapters of it. It's set after Died in the Wall, before Alan goes back to England, so it's towards the end of the war. People were sexist. Um, and they, they were jingoistic, absolutely, so I can get away with some of that. Um, I, but one of the things that I hope for this is that it might bring her work to a new audience. So I don't want to write a pastiche. I don't want to write it like I'm just trying to pretend I'm her. And I want it to have the spirit of her and the tone of her, but maybe make it more accessible to a modern reader. And there's God knows if I can achieve that. I mean, I, I genuinely don't. You know, but it's, I'm, I'm really grateful that the estate and the publishers asked me. I'm really enjoying it as an intellectual challenge. It's, a, it's an extraordinary challenge. Extraordinary challenge. So, and, and it's called, you know, is it finishing the novel? Is finish the right word? Well, no, finish isn't the right word at all, because finish no. would suggest there's only two chapters left to write. Yes. She'd only written three chapters. None of them are as long as her normal opening chapters. They are sketchy chapters, by easily sketchy chapters. Um, and, you know, that means there's another 35 or so to do. And in her notes, she doesn't say who done it. She doesn't say why done it. And she doesn't say where done it. But she does open, and the first paragraph is a lovely first paragraph. And the first paragraph says it takes place over the course of a single night. I know, right? So it's a, lock, and, uh, so it's a locked room mystery that takes place over a short amount of time with Inspector Allen and a bunch of people in a scarlet fever hospital out on the plains. So um, I may be pointing in the wrong direction, sorry. Oh, no, you said <laughs> west, out on the plains. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I have... It, it's bloody hard, is what it is, and really engaging for me to do. You said somewhere that <coughs> there are a number of phrases that you've seen that she uses in yep. her books... That um, that you can add into this novel to yep. again carry that. What what sort of phrases do you mean? Alan rubbed his nose. Rubbing his nose, Alan said. Uh -huh. Alan looked through the window, rubbing his nose. <laughs> <laughs> his ascetic monk's face looked among them. Um, his long hands. Oh God, she's on and on about his lovely long hands. His long limbs. She's so in love with him. Um, his long hands, rubbing his nose. Characters look out of the corner of their eye, the side of their eye, or the edge of their eye. When you, I've, I've highlighted, so, um, and the piece in the press, because I'd said to, oh God, I'm sorry, I can't remember the, the guy I talked to. Charlie Gates. Yeah, Charlie. Charlie yeah. Gates, that's it. I'd said to him, I've got these 18 books on my table, and they wrote 18 novels. I'm like, no, people are going to think I only read 18. There's 32 novels. I've yeah. read them all. But it's just that HarperCons have published them as omnibus pieces. So I've got all the novels and all the biographies, the two biographies in her autobiography and the updated edition. But the omnibus ones, of course, I've ripped apart, so they're in three, so I can carry them around. They're annotated, they're highlighted. And I, I started to realise that these... And, oh, primordial when talking about New Zealand. The primordial <laughs> landscape. Um, I started to, to realise that these things popped up again. So at the moment, in my first draft, Alan is rubbing his nose far too often. Um, <laughs> I've probably got it in at least four times, and I, I think that even for something that happens a lot in, her, in hers... I need to be more sparse, because otherwise that risks pastiche as well. So um, I'm doing the first draft, and I'm trying, <laughs> 61,000 words in, and it'll probably be about 75,000. I think this is a shorter one. 
and I'm trying to, to get the form and the content. So I think me and the editor think we know who done it. Because um, she often didn't know in her first draft. And she says that then she goes back when she's worked out, she's worked out how it manages, then she peppers it and seeds it with clues so that the reader can begin to understand. Um, I think I've got that. And then I'm, when I finish that, then I'm going to go back and get the style right. Because there was no point in trying to get the style right in the beginning when I didn't know where it was going. I think. I hope that's the right way. I'll find out. <laughs> she, she was very good on landscape, and yeah. that's perhaps that painterly eye that she Yes, had. and what has she done? She set this overnight. Ah, yeah. Right. He's not looking out at the plains. Okay. That's However, I have, I ha I'm going to have dawn <laughs> um, <laughs> so that we can see that. And I think that at least one of the characters will, will get a lovely speech. You can't do any flashback into no, daylight. No, well, I'm not. I mean, they do, sort of. I mean, Died in the Wall is almost that in some of the, the, is, the yes. speeches about it. Yes. So, no, I'm not going to do that. But I am going to have people talking about landscape because it matters to them. In the last couple of days, you've spent some time with the Nyamash Trust yep. people. Um, so how did it feel going to her house? I mean, um, uh, was there a vibe? Did you pick up anything? <laughs> or did you, did you learn something about her character, Naya's character, from seeing her home? Mm, I don't know. I mean, I think she's not very revelatory the, the, about herself. And I kind of thought, I don't want to pry. You know, she, did, she had an opportunity in Black Beach and Honeydew when she revised it in the 80s to say a lot more than she had in the 60s version, and she didn't. And a lot of people are grumpy with her about that, you know. And she chose not to. Well, that's, that's her yeah. privilege. Yep. So um, I didn't open any drawers, although I know people have changed everything since. It was yep. nice to sit there. What I liked, and again, this goes back to the landscape concept, if all of the trees that have grown up weren't there, and you can see between the trees, this great big vista from up there on the hill, and the, the looking across... I think, goes to her, her painterliness, her, you know, her, her amazing painting work. It was lovely to see her paintings, actually. That, that did yeah. make a difference for me, because I've seen loads of pictures of them, but to see them properly, you know, and the size of them as well, that was great. To see that the house is really eclectic um, is good, I thought. But I think I might have written the last two lines sitting in the chair in her bedroom with the sun on me and How the view outside. Because <laughs> I jumped forward. I mean, obviously, I haven't finished it. But at the end, you know, Alan's going to finally go home. Like, he doesn't manage to, at the end of Died in the Wall, because now I brought him, made him stay in New Zealand, um, which is the only way we could fit it in. Um, uh, so I know what, what he's got to say, and that, that whoever's done it has done it, and that's been wrapped up. And I've been thinking about how it might end for a while. So I think I wrote at least a first draft shoddy version of what might be at the end. And I, I quite had this, and me and the editor, David Braun, who's done the, the Agatha Christie ones as well, and he's, he's a lovely man, had a nice little dream about me sitting in her chair and doing it. I didn't sit in her writing chair. I thought that would be a bit presumptuous. Um, I sat in her chair in her bedroom. Right. They did suggest I did that. And I mean, no. <laughs> There's enough ghosts here as it is. And you went for a trip out into the countryside. Yes, today we went, today? Um, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Margaret Lynn um, from, from the Trust took me out to the Waimakariri Bridge Gorge, um, the bridge over the gorge, and to see the hospital at... Um, Sh Sh I want to say Sheffield, but I don't think that's right, is it? 
Springfield? It's a country cottage hospital. Oxford. Um, the country, not Sheffield. Um, the country cottage hospital at Oxford, which they think is where Naomi Marsh drove the ambulance to during the war. It's nowhere near big enough for the hospital that she's written in the first three chapters. Nowhere near big enough. But there were a couple of things there that I thought I could put in just as just physical description yeah. because it's a hospital that would have been, that was around at that time. So that's useful. She might have made that up anyway. Oh, she made up loads of things. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it's like it's like um, colour scheme is set in the north of the North Island. Well, there aren't boiling mud pools in the north of the North North Island. She means the volcanic yeah. plateau where I grew up. You know, she she fudges um, landscapes and areas, and that's totally fine. She's a novelist after all. <laughs> it's you, novelist. Yeah, it's fiction. Yeah. Um, so I think I'm going to be fudging a few places, but. That's fine. When's it due for publication? Oh, God. Um, May 2018. They're pretty certain that can happen. Oh, I'm okay. delivering to the estate on the September the 1st, and I'm delivering to the editor. Because the estate, um, you know, they, they, they agreed this. They wanted this. Obviously, because if it works, if I'm not terrible, then it will help, hopefully help sell the backlist. Um, and uh, they get they get to... Not say we don't like your writing, but the wording in the contract's really funny. It's something like, um, in case I bring any of the characters into ill repute. Um, <laughs> something like that. They get, they, get, they get to have a say on that. And then it goes to Collins, who obviously will say, no, Stella, um, Alan didn't have a, a watch at that point. He had a timepiece, you know, yeah. because they know. And the woman who does that for them has done it on the Agatha Christie books as well. Yeah. And I trust her to get that better than I will. Well, we will look forward to it. Can we go back to London Lies Beneath? Which Absolutely. Is a great read. Thank you. It's um, full of energy. It was described in one of the reviews as being the seamy side. Oh, I can't find it now. The seamy side um, of, of South London. But it didn't strike me as being seamy. It strikes me as full of what you've captured as an extraordinary amount of energy of that mm. working class mm. life, the yeah. sort of the barrow lanes and so on. Um, th I, I, think, lots I, of I think the see me might come from the Guardian review, which is terrible, don't read it, um, ah. which she really hates uh, because I haven't made the working class men beat their wives. I mean, there is violence in it, but, and, and there is a fist-happy man who lives upstairs, but the lead characters are working class and they're good, and it really pissed her off. Um, which I thought was hilarious and extremely annoying um, because, as my publisher said, they don't normally give two pages to something they don't like so much. Um, uh, you know, but um, there's this whole long review. You're going to go and read it now, aren't you? Will you read one of the nice ones as well? The Financial Times one is fantastic. Yeah. Um, anyway, she, she complained, and of course none of my bloody friends read the Financial Times, do they? They all read The Guardian, you know, and the next day they're going... Mm, mm. Um, and... Uh, um, <laughs> I don't think it's seamy at all. I think no, they're just, I don't think it's seamy. It's poor, full of life you know? and energy. <laughs> um, yeah, they're poor people. And uh, my mother's mother was in service at the age of 11. My mother's mother was a tweenie in a massive house um, at the age of 11, uh, living. Um, and she was living in Kennington in a shared house and sent down. My, my great, my grandfather, we've only just discovered in, I don't think I've ever said this in public. This is good. Some of my siblings might not like this one. Um, my grandfather, who I knew was born in Deptford, who a tiny bit of his story features in here um, when Victor talks about his childhood um, in Deptford. 
Um, and my grandfather was born... Sometimes I say to people in a shared house, and, and they mean, oh, you know, just like with your family. This is my great-grandmother, because I know this from the census, had t one room, one room in which she had six children and herself. And on the census, she writes that she goes out charring between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m. It's Deptford and the docks are down there. I don't think she goes out charring. Um, there's no husband to speak of. She's written down as a widow. And on one of the censuses, there are four children still at home. And I, you know, because these are available now to, to look at. And, um, and they're free to download or five quid or something. And I download it because we don't know anything about my family's past. Poor families never know anything about their family's past. There's no photos. There's none of that. We just, we didn't keep it because we didn't have it. Anyway, in very scrawly handwriting, she's written something scrubbed out. And it says widow. So we don't know whether she was married or not. But we, we assume not. And then it's got the kids' ages. And it says where the kids were born. And the kids are born in, because Deptford was in the bar, is still in the borough of Greenwich. It says Greenwich, Greenwich, Holloway, Greenwich. <sighs> and I always thought, that's interesting. <laughs> um, and you have, um, who do you think you are here, right? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. So um, Danny Dyer, who's in, who's in Corrie or EastEnders, his, who do you think you are, and he plays a cheeky chappy, um, his who do you think you are proved that he was somebody terribly posh or related to someone terribly posh, I can't remember who. But he was able to look up his grandmother's records in Holloway and I didn't know this was possible. So having seen that, I went, oh my God, that's amazing. And of course, I'd, I'd gone, well, she probably stole a loaf of bread, didn't she? Poor woman, must have been awful. I looked it up. She was in for the manslaughter of one of her children. I know. Um, and uh, this is my great-grandmother. This is my grandfather's mother. Um, and she was in for the manslaughter of one of her children. And there's also the court record. And the court record has her again saying she goes out charring between 9 o'clock at night and 6 in the morning. She says, I'm always home for the kids in the morning to get them up and get the little ones off to school. And she says, I didn't know the baby was that sick. And how could she possibly have afforded the doctor? I didn't know the baby was that sick, and the 12-year-old who was looking after the baby didn't know either. And so then they send her to Holloway for 18 months, and obviously she's pregnant when she goes, because she, she got pregnant in Holloway. They send her to Holloway for 18 months. What the hell happens to the other kids, including my granddad, who is very long dead, and I don't know. But he was 10 years old when his mother was sent to Holloway for 18 months. And... So anyway, sorry. That's, no, no, no. So that's the really... see-me, that's, that's not see-me, that's bloody heartbreaking. And yeah. these families are of that. And their community, my mum always said that the communities around them would take the kids in. They would look after the kids. And that, that's what they did. And yes, they, they, they probably were slap-happy. I don't mean to say that lightly. You know, violence against women and children is, uh, has been very damaging in my family. Um, I don't mean that lightly. But I do mean that they aren't just this awful myth. And one of the reasons I started writing this book was because Downton Abbey was pissing me off so much. <laughs> Seriously. I'd had this story in my head for bloody ages and everyone was banging on and on about Downton. And I started watching it and I went, well, the working class characters have written really badly. 
really badly. And Shiv, Siobhan Finneran, who's an amazing actor, is a friend of mine, playing the Mrs. Danvers one. And Shiv's so much better, certainly than the first series. I know they gave her more to do later. The working class characters were written like ciphers. The middle, the middle class and the posh characters were what it was about. And I got so annoyed that I thought, well, I'm just going to have to bloody write this book that I've been banging on, been telling myself I need to write, and I don't know enough. And um, so thanks to Julian Fellows, uh, I, I, uh, I wrote this. <laughs> That's not why I wrote and it. And you really captured that sense of community. I mean, yeah. the community tensions as yeah. well, but yep. community. It must also have taken quite a lot of research because, like, medical research, some of the... Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, it did. What is it? Drops of laudanum and cocaine. Uh -huh. Now, there's a mix for you. I know, that'd be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, probably, I mean, sleepy and awake. Yeah. Um, no, it, it, was, it did take a lot of research, but... But I enjoy that stuff. I was going to say, do you like yeah. research? And I'd done the two other historical novels about Theodora, depending on your take on Roman history, the last empress of Rome or the first empress of Byzantium. Um, and I'd learnt how to do research because I didn't know anything at, when I did those. And I just had this dream of writing about Theodora, who's the most amazing woman, brought in the first anti-rape laws, brought in the, the, the law that gave women back their dowry when their husbands dumped them in 548 AD phenomenal woman who'd been an ex-prostitute because she was a child dancer and children were, were prostituted as dancers. Um, just amazing. She was phenomenal. Um, but I, t I had no idea how you did research. And I did literally about 18 months of work finding everything out. And then I sat down thinking, I finally know enough to start. And I didn't know how to start because I'd killed it by knowing too much which meant that there wasn't any room for the fiction, you know? So I then had to forget all what I knew and try and start in at a different angle. And it worked in the end, but it wasn't I'd wasted the work, but I'd sort of done it the wrong way around. So with this, I sort of knew who I was writing about, and I, sort of, I certainly knew about the time, and I did a lot of research around that particular period. But then I started writing so that, so that the, ah, oh, really wanky, write a thing I'm about to say so that the characters told me what happened. <laughs> <laughs> but so that the characters were alive, ah, again. Um, so that the characters were what it was about. And therefore, the, if the character needed to be selling something, I then went and found out what they needed to be selling. Yeah. Also, there are two amazing books. If you're interested at all in this period and how it was for working class, there's a fantastic book by the New Zealander, Maud Pember Reeves. Do you know about Maud Pember Reeves? Does anyone know about her? Oh, go and look her up. She's amazing. I might have to write a solo show about her, though, so don't make too much about her because I might need to do it. Um, she worked for the Fawcett Society. She was this fantastic woman, and she, she, she went, these people aren't poor because they're bad. And then the, the poshies were saying, well, I, I don't know why they're not putting fires on in their houses. They just need to get coal. Well, to get coal, they had, you had to buy it in a hundredweight at a time. Who could afford to buy a hundredweight when they can't even buy, afford to buy an apple? Who could, and so what people were doing was they were buying a lump of coal at a time. I have to put this down because I spent too long in theatre and I've just mined a piece of coal that I now have to put down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> More wankiness. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the other thing she says in it, and I think I've got, I think Bill might say it. They say, why don't the poor feed their children on porridge? And he says, and he's because the, the, good, the good people come around and tell them, you should feed your children on porridge, you know, the, the do-gooders. And he says, 
she doesn't understand we don't have sugar. We don't have anything to put on the porridge. It's porridge and water. We don't even have salt. She doesn't understand. We've got nothing to make the porridge taste of anything. You try feeding a child porridge when it just tastes of porridge and water. And these are, these are genuine quotes from mm. Maud Pember Reeves's Round About a Pound a Week. And isn't that a lovely rhythm? Round About a Pound a Week. Oh. Um, it's just gorgeous. Sorry, sorry, going I, on too long. No, it's really interesting, but people will have questions. Yes. And we've got five minutes. Sorry. So, can we raise the lights a bit? And has anybody got any questions? I mean, I do think you've integrated your research into that, into that book so very well. It's very lively, and it's a, it's a tragic tale based on a well, real incident. Right now. But you'll just have to buy it. Yes, you do. Now, does anybody have a question? Hang, there's a microphone coming in case other people need it. Sorry. Thank you. Um, I'm enjoying your talk very much indeed. It's, a, it's really grand. Um, I'm interested to hear about how your family comes out in your work. And I was wondering whether your father comes out. Uh, you're obviously exceedingly fond of him. And I wondered if he He died out. when I was 25. Um, so that's over half my life ago. Um, he was a very strong figure. He was a, a union man. He was the president of the Tokoro RSA. He was a very old school left wing. When I came out, he was great, surprisingly. When I told him I was going to be an actor, not a lawyer or a teacher, he was furious. And, like a lot of those people, he was also extremely damaged from the war. He was an alcoholic, and he was very violent. Uh, so I think what comes out of him about that, and, and unfortunately, um, I think me and my sister, certainly the two youngest of us, we understood his reasonings for his problems, we didn't understand why our mother let it happen because we, did, we weren't good enough feminists yet to understand what it's like to live with a man like that who is extremely lovable and extremely difficult as well. Um, so, so he does, but it's, certain, it's in the complicated characters um, because I know what it's like to live with an extremely, grow up with an extremely complicated man and a woman who loves that person. Um, so yeah, he does. I might cry again. Uh, New Zealand is, is where my dad's buried. My mum's ashes are in England, you see. So he's, he's, I think he shows up more when I'm talking about stuff here as well. Um, he's definitely one of the ghosts. He also shows up, weirdly, <laughs> in The Hidden Room, which is a book about a cult. Um, but I'll leave it to you to work out which one he is. Uh, I mean, he's not any of them. But um, that idea of a very strong, um, charismatic male figure um, who is also quite difficult. I haven't realised it until I just said that, actually. And believe me, my dad isn't, isn't the bad man in this. <laughs> really. I wasn't born in a cult, although I am one of seven. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, the, the charismatic, difficult uh, patriarch, sure. And this is, it is a psychological thriller, and I was saying to Stella back in the green room, I actually had to give up reading it, doing that, you know, that nice thing, you go to bed and you read a bit of current novel. Couldn't, couldn't do it, had to give it up. I had to only read it in the daytime. It's very disturbing. But, but think Gloria Vale. That <laughs> yeah. will give you... Do you hear so. about Gloria Vale? It's on the West Coast here, and it's a cult. Oh, really? Much like the one Oh, okay. Great. Yeah. Think that then. Yeah, think Gloria Vale. Mm, very disturbing. Yeah. Any other questions? Over here. Hi. Um, kia ora, Stella. Kia ora. Um, nice. 
to hear you tonight um, sharing, your, sharing your bits. It's been wonderful. Just a quick question. I got really confused um, when I first came across, you know, it's Dame Lyle Marsh. Yeah, yeah. If you're from Christchurch, you're going to grow up with that name. Yeah. But I got confused early in the piece. I thought she was Māori because her name was Lyle. Uh -huh. Can you please kind of, why is her name Lyle? They thought it was a pretty flower. Oh, I the family thought it was a pretty flower, um, and and in fact, in the in the the marsh I'm writing, there are three soldiers, and they all have Pakeha names, and I have chosen to make one of them Maori because I really want to to deal with the stuff you were saying and not to update it, but I want to see if I can make it possible to bring her respectfulness, and I think I might be able to to bear on this and also allow... I, I don't want to write a New Zealand novel that has only Pākehā characters. I really don't. I have never written a novel in my life that has only white characters. I don't understand how anybody can, unless they're living in a cult where everyone's white, I suppose. Um, I've never written a novel in my life where everyone's straight. I, I don't live in a world like that. So to, for me to write a New Zealand novel that didn't have a Māori character would have been a travesty. So... I've, I've, I've got him in, but um, I had a conversation on Facebook with a whole load of friends, and I said, look, any of you um, with Māori mothers or, you know, um, mixed-race mothers born in the, the 20s, please let's have their names. Because so we've got, so we've got Mere and Nairi, and um, there was a couple of Rebecca's, um, and, uh, and then we had a vote on which one the girlfriend should be called. And she's Nairi. And actually, you know, Nairi will work for a British audit reader as well because of Nairi Dawn Porter. And so it won't... And the other thing that I've done for Niall, which I'm really proud of, is, is and I made them keep it in, is that in the introduction to the nursing home murders, which is come, has just come out, and I've done, written the introduction to it, at the end of it, I say, and by the way, Niall is pronounced Ni, N-I-G-H, or... O -double o -O -R slash A-W-E, depending on which ear you're listening it to it with. So with any luck, we'll stop them saying Ngayo, or the Americans, Ngayo. <laughs> uh, and that'd be great, because they genuinely don't know, and they have no idea, and I'm really hopeful that we'll make a change for her. That's why. I'm afraid on that Sorry. note, because we've, <laughs> and Gail. we've come to the end of our time. Um, it's been fascinating and delightful. And uh, out in the foyer, there are books to be there bought. There are books. There's the other books Lots as well. Of books. Loads of books. And Stella will, you may be able to carry on some of this conversation, and Stella will happily sign them for you. So would you please... Um, Give her a good round of applause. Thank for you for being here. Night. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.